electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grosso. Tonight on Fast, we've got our eyes on another round of earnings movers after the bell tonight. From Qualcomm to Roku, we're dialed into the calls. We'll bring you the trades. Plus, Zillow gets zapped. Shares of the online real estate company seeing their worst day in nearly three years. Why the move got not one, but two of our traders buying in today. And just say no, that's J.P. Morgan's stance on some U.S. pot stocks. What's behind the move? How it will affect the industry? But we start off with the taper heard round the world. The Fed finally announcing the long-awaited wind-down of its bond-buying program. The news sending stock markets to fresh highs. Let's get straight to Steve Leisman, who's got the details. And I think... Well, you'll tell us, Steve, but I'm really curious to see uh, what Fed funds futures are saying at this point. And I'm going to give you that in just about a half a minute here, Melissa. First, let's do the news. The Fed took its first tentative steps toward removing the pandemic emergency policy measures, announcing at the November meeting it will begin to reduce its $120 billion in monthly asset purchases. The taper will begin this month, $15 billion monthly pace. That'll bring it down to $105 billion monthly. How will it get there? $10 billion less in treasuries and $5 billion less in mortgage-backed securities. Fed's saying it's likely to continue in coming months. It pre-announced it would do so in December already. Fed said the amount of taper can be adjusted if the economic outlook changes. It left interest rates unchanged at zero, but Fed Chair Jay Powell said tapering will put the Fed in position to adjust rate policy if needed because of higher inflation. We see higher inflation persisting, and we have to be in position to address that risk should it become uh, should it become really a threat uh, to to uh, should create a threat of more persistent longer term inflation, and that's what we think our policy is doing now. It was Fed Chair Powell's first press conference since the dramatic repricing in Fed funds futures markets that has the market now betting on rate hikes beginning in July instead of December. And Powell he didn't push back against that pricing. He didn't affirm it either. As a result, as promised to Melissa here, the probabilities of a rate hike next year. Largely unchanged on the day, with a 53% chance of the first hike in July, all the way up to, just be careful, watch our x-axis here, that's a 69% chance of a second hike by December. Powell acknowledged that inflation was higher than he's comfortable with and that supply bottlenecks were larger and more persistent than expected. But the Fed's sticking to its guns that they expect inflation to come down once those bottlenecks ease up. If they don't, Powell said the Fed will use its tools to address the problem. Melissa, did you get what you needed there? Um, yeah, absolutely, because I think that, that what that shows you is that basically he's affirming where the markets are right now. I mean, I know you said he didn't affirm, but he didn't really he didn't push it off or anything like that. And, and the fact that the market's so dramatically right. repriced in just the past three weeks and he didn't push back on that, I think that speaks volumes. I agree with you. Um, and it also speaks volumes to me that the, that the stock market seemed to be wary of a more hawkish comment from Powell. I think now the market sees it could go either way here. Um, 
But I think the main thing is, if that's really the case, if you put that chart back up and you tell me, hey, I'm going to have 50 basis points by the end of December, they're going to get rid of the, the, the taper very slowly or get rid of the, the asset purchase very slowly, it's not that bad a situation for the stock market, I don't think, if that's the worst they get. All right. Steve, thank you. Steve Leisman. Pleasure. Guy Dami, welcome back, first of all. Second of all, what did you make Mills. of everything today? They're doing a fence. They, the Federal Reserve, is doing an amazing job of speaking to the market. I mean, they've done a masterful job, I would say, since October of 2018, when I think Jerome Powell sort of learned a very difficult lesson. Ever since then, they've been getting progressively better in terms of saying and doing the things the market wants to hear. You know, I think Steve hit the nail on the head. What I will say, though, again, you know, tapering is great, but we're still talking about a Fed balance sheet that this time next year is going to be approaching probably you know, nine and a half trillion dollars or thereabouts, which is pretty significant if you think about it. But in terms of what we heard today, that hawkish tone was not there. And the market obviously took its cues. I'll say this. The Russell, the small cap, certainly liked it because it is now broken out to a new all time high. <clears throat> yeah. Is this sort of the green light for I know we hate to say it. Santa Claus rally into year end, Karen. I think it already started a couple of weeks ago. You know, this year you had to buy early, I guess, for, you know, supply chain. So I guess it started early. I, I mean, that was I, I thought he did. Like I said, I thought he's done a masterful job of telegraphing what they were going to do. I always say I feel like the Fed and the market are sort of holding each other hostage. And if nobody makes any sudden moves, we'll all get out of here alive. And that's sort of what he's <laughs> trying to do. I think this is the very start of the talk about raising rates he's just just beginning now like you're saying he didn't he didn't push back on that you know july june july so i think that's starting too and if he does the same thing i think the market can live with it all that having been said though i think protection is relatively cheap here so i want to buy some more protection there's also substantial runway ahead tim for um, the markets to do the tightening without Jay Powell and, and the Fed doing anything whatsoever, particularly if we see inflation and if the markets see inflation as more than just transitory. It almost doesn't. I'm not going to say this. Oh, well, I'll say this. It almost doesn't matter what Powell you does <laughs> in reality because the markets are doing the tightening here. Well, it, it's 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 like the Fed, you know, a, a meeting ago, the Fed was trying to reestablish credibility by showing they're more hawkish. Today, they're trying to reestablish credibility to show that they are in charge, not the markets and, and that we can be more dovish if we want to be. See, um, and, and, and forcing us with the idea that inflation isn't anywhere as bad as they want to be. And also maybe, you know, flexing in front of the other central banks and saying we are the biggest, baddest, you know, our central bank, your problem. Because I, I think that's really where we got to with this. The market was, this was a dovish taper. This was a market that was uh, fearful of dot plots moving and, and has seen the short end of the curves move. So the bond yield steepened today, right? You had the short end uh, fall, a handful of basis points. The, the, the long end, you know, went up a couple. Um, but it was a steepening and it was a sense that um, tapering is all you have right now and all you have to worry about. And again, we're in charge, not the market. Um, I, I don't believe that they can do that. 
Um, but they did that today. And, and if you look at higher risk assets as we've kind of sorted through this, well, first of all, the dollar, dollar sold off 25 bips really on that news to the end of the day, signaling that if, if our central bank is, is behind other central banks now, the dollar will weaken. Um, and that will quickly turn. And again, um, I, I love Steve. I love the Stella Blues Band. But if the Fed hikes uh, in June of next year and the minute they start moving from there, I don't care that we're back to normal. The market's going to hate it. And I think that that's the issue here, because the Fed has created a dynamic where even if we get back to pre, uh, you know, COVID levels on interest rates, um, that's not good enough for this market right now. And so it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, sorry, guy, we can say, you know, it's a Christmas rally. We've been saying it for the last 40 days. Um, and I think you, 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 you do have it. And I, I don't think markets need to sell off here. And I think the reaction tells you there's a sigh of relief until we get them. But um, look out when it happens. And, and it's going to happen. For now, though, certainly a sigh of relief for higher valuation stocks and tech stocks, Steve. Yeah, and I, and I don't think, well, a couple of things. So I echo uh, the rest of the group. I think he's done a masterful job. Let's use that word. I think it, it, it took him a while to get to the learning curve. But the 210 spread has widened slightly. I don't think he has to raise rates. So I think he's going to put it off. And to your point, the market can do what it wants around that. But if you look at the 10-year right now, it doesn't imply any inflation to me. You can say it's positioning, but I think this is more a reflection of the supply chain issues coming back from a pandemic, markets uh, reopening, economy reopening. I don't think Powell has to do a darn thing right now. And that means the market can move higher. So that so means both value and right. tech are all clear. So, so to what you said before, I, well, I think what you were going to say before as well, but what I'll say is, it really doesn't matter at this point. The market wants to move higher, and it's actually going to greet taper and tightening when it happens with open arms. But I think the tightening part of that is not going to happen anytime soon. Open arms. I feel like that is quite a prediction. Um, if you are, I have a question for you guys. If you're a believer that all of this inflation that we're seeing right now, um, and I know people are seeing in their households and every single thing that they buy these days, if you're a believer that that's transitory, then are, should you be investing in oil stocks? That's a good question. I mean, if you give me a time frame, I'm probably better suited to answer. The, short, the answer Six is months. if you think this is going to somehow be fleeting, then no. I think you probably sort of you might want to take a powder here, especially given some of the price action later. I think Carter's going to speak to that. But I'm not of that belief. I think the oil trade is intact. I understand the OIH has sold off a bit since that run up to 229. But I still think the oil uh, play is intact. And I'll say this. I think, th I think they understand that transitory is just a word at this point, And it's not nearly as transitory as they'd hoped six months ago. I think if you really ask them in the recesses of their mind, they would have said we'd been well beyond this by uh, December of this year. And we're not even close. So, you know, we can talk transitory all you want. It's not going away anytime soon. Karen, you sounded cautious when you were talking about, you know, the price of protection, which is low right now. Uh, and I'm wondering, what is like the number one thing that concerns you about what might happen to this rally? Uh, I, I mean, I COVID turning, you know, another variant, which mm -hmm. I think we all think of as a lower likelihood right now. But, you know, the reopen trade has really sort of, you know, picked up a lot of steam, particularly retail today. 
and we saw like seven properties yesterday. So that would be one thing. Um, I guess we could see trouble in, you know, uh, fiscal cliff and that's debt ceiling, that kind of thing that usually that is transitory. It's been transitory every single time, but it does happen and it does get the market afraid, those kind of things. And then big misses. And if they don't get and if the the the, um, the port situation gets worse instead of better, I mean, cargo rates have been coming down. But if they start to go the other way, then we'll see more misses next quarter's earnings and probably the one after that. All right. Um, well, we are watching oil prices. They dropped more than 4% today, the biggest loss since July. And the chartmaster says there may be more downside ahead. That's Rand Carter worth or worth charting to break it all down. I guess, Carter, this goes right to the uh, transitory <laughs> conversation that we've been having. Well, in many ways, it does. Um, I mean, essentially, just looking from 30,000 feet, crude a year ago was $40 a barrel. And essentially, it's 80 now. It's obviously a big move. We hit as high as 85 just a few sessions ago. So the question is, is this sell-off from 85 and change to just uh, below 80? We hit 79.70 today. Is it normal? As of now, that's all you could characterize as. Let's look at a few charts and figure out where, if it goes further, it might go. So the first, um, that's WTI. And you've seen on the top there, I've annotated with what's called an internal trend line. Most trend lines are below price action. In this case, it's failed three times to the penny right at that ascending line. And if you look at the drawdowns that ensued, next chart, you'll see that we had, of course, the March uh, drawdown, that was 16%. We had the July-August drawdown, that was 20 And this one is down about 6 7 now. Do we have to go down as far as those others? No. But it isn't random where we stopped, again, up against that internal trend line. Third chart. So if and as this dip uh, were to continue, and it's more in line with the March dip down 15, 16, or the July, August dip down 20. Um, the bottom trend line is something to consider. And so that would take you towards 72 or thereabouts and about a 15% decline. So final chart, this little minor channel that we're in, we flirted with breaking it today. And I think one has to assume that we will break it or said differently that the dip that's only 6, 7% now will go further. And that, does that necessarily mean energy equities will follow, Carter? Well, the interesting thing about energy, let's say it this way. If you were to look month by month from the month that the pandemic hit in March, oil as a sector, energy as a sector, was down much worse than the S&P. And then, of course, in April and May, energy ricocheted hard, as did the market, but because of its beta and cyclicality, much more than market. But since then, 20 months, Energy sector has outperformed the S&P 10 and underperformed 10. And if one didn't catch those first two months, April, May, energy has been a massive underperformer. I just don't think one's paid for the risk. Carter, thank you. Carter Worth of Worth Charting. One is not paid for the risk, Tim. Um, What's your stance on on energy stocks? I I think... there's there's certainly not a linear relationship between the you know the oil price and what you should see stocks do and as we know with oil services they they are nowhere near back to pre-covid levels um with an oil price that's higher and and some of this is really drilling into i guess pun intended the, the dynamics that move oil services you need a higher oil price for a more sustained period to then see people reaching out and drilling and expanding their budgets and their capex and their opex and, and i think we're going to see that i think the reality is that the 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 
fundamentals, the structural nature of this sector is that the swing production doesn't exist in the United States right now based upon a lack of investment. It exists within OPEC plus. And they are the ones that, at least for now, are turning the screws a little bit. I think they're for now, they're they're friends. And I think they're going to continue to at least be in a position to have cohesion and solidarity amongst that group. I don't think oil prices are going to fall dramatically unless you have some kind of a monetary impact. And we're talking about the Fed and we're talking about dynamics that do affect the price of oil. The fundamentals, the structural dynamics and the secular dynamics around investment or lack thereof in oil. I think oil prices are moving higher. Um, If we're so worried about inflation, um, the Fed's not going to impact the price of oil and commodities overnight. So I I actually disagree. I think we have a case here where we've had a a pullback. It makes a lot of sense we've had a pullback. You also haven't had um, macro OPEC dynamics to drive the next move higher. I think you'll get that. Do you also, Steve, go against Carter Worth? Uh, So, no, I I believe that oil is coming in, and I believe for... Uh, a fundamental reason or two. The Iranian nuclear deal has Iran exporting 500 to 600,000 barrels per day. If that gets overturned or reversed, it goes up to a million. That floods the market and then couple that with China slowing. But then you have the juxtaposed holding the uh, price on oil with this, the Biden administration uh, cutting down on drilling and lack of supply. So I think it does come in. I don't think it comes in drastically, but I like uh, um, uh, Carter's levels of roughly 67 to 72 a barrel of oil. All right. Coming up, we're tracking two big movers in the after hours, Roku and Qualcomm, both seeing action in extended trade. We've got the details next, plus talk about fashion forward. Shares of Capri surging on the back of earnings. So is this trade still worth trying on? We're digging into that in just a few. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're tracking the action in two stocks after hours. Shares of Roku and Qualcomm both on the move after reporting. Julie Borson standing by in Roku, but we start off with Josh Lipton, who's got the latest from Qualcomm. Josh. 
So, Melissa, remember heading into this report, Qualcomm was down about 10% this year. It was down about 20% from its January high, but that stock now shooting higher here in the after hours, beating on the top and bottom. Q1 guidance also better than expected. Investors we know had questions about Qualcomm, the outlook for smartphone shipments, supply constraints. On the other hand, I spoke to Cowan's Matt Ramsey earlier today, attractively valued, he argues, and the leader in communications chips, he says, that is going to benefit, he argues, as we make these transitions for G to 5G to 6G. On the call, CEO Cristiano Amon talking about strength in his company's chipset business, but the increasing revenue diversification of the company, too. Yes, handsets, but also autos and IoT. As for that licensing business, the most successful licensing business in the industry, he says, reflecting the value of the company's patent portfolio and 155G agreements and counting. There are supply constraints, but he continues to expect material improvements to supply, he says, by end of year. For more on Qualcomm, tune in tomorrow. Squawk on the Street, where Qualcomm CEO will join us for more color and commentary about this print. Back to you all. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. Uh, Guy Adami, it's basically erasing the losses it's seen for the past few months. So how do you, you, know, how do you interpret the quarter? Look, the, the fake out, the head fakes in Qualcomm have been many over the last year or so. But we traded down to 122. We held that sort of spring low once again. We've bounced. It's a tremendous quarter. And what I'm most encouraged by is the guide. I mean, you start doing the math and you look at that first quarter guide, you can make a case that maybe they're going to earn close to $11 a share or so in this fiscal year. I mean, you can do the math. I think in terms of valuation, up stack up Qualcomm against anybody. I mean, if you like Texas Instruments at their valuation, I think you got to love Qualcomm here. You get a close above 148, and I think you've taken out a downtrend line that we've been in for quite some time. I love the quarter, and I think this time it's for real to the upside. The line, Karen, about material improvements by the end of the year to supply chain seems to be very good news, particularly, you know, in light of the fact that Qualcomm was one of the suppliers that had uh, trouble delivering to Apple. And that was sort of one of the issues uh, for Apple. Right. I looked to see if Apple was up on the heels of that news. It didn't seem to be when I looked then, although I think uh, Qualcomm cited more Android. So that was interesting to me, though. I haven't heard that elsewhere that I recall. So. Uh, and good for them to sort of navigate. They also talked about, uh, as Josh said, uh, sort of diversifying and having more exposure to automobiles. So I thought it was a good quarter, too. I thought the outlook was good in the new valuation world of semis. Uh, you know, it's not expensive. So um, it's I don't own it, but uh, I think the risk reward is actually compelling here, even right. up today. Let's uh, get to Roku here. The stock is also on the move after reporting. Julia Borson's got the details. Hey, Julia. Hey, Melissa. Well, Roku shares plummeting on worse than expected fourth quarter revenue guidance and third quarter active user accounts and streaming hours that both fell short of expectations. This despite the fact that earnings per share as well as average revenue per user both surpassed expectations. Now, a key factor that are that's weighing both on the slower than expected user growth and on that fourth quarter revenue guidance supply chain interruptions. The company is saying that supply chain interruptions impacted TV sales, including the TV makers with Roku TV embedded, and also advertising. Roku CFO Steve Loudon telling me on a call just a few minutes ago that, quote, whether it's auto manufacturers, whether it's consumer products companies, they have their own supply chain constraints and import constraints. So some of those folks are starting to slow down their marketing. So that is a factor. Loudon also cited tough compare 
comparisons with last year's fourth quarter. He called that the, an exceptional fourth quarter, and so that's going to make the t- comps t- tough. And keep in mind that last quarter services such as HBO Max were just starting to gain steam, doing a lot of advertising. So worth keeping an eye on that. The stock was down more than 10% earlier. Now it's down about 8%. Melissa? Julia, thanks. Julia Borson. Tim, we heard that before. You don't have the goods. You don't, you know, you, you don't advertise if you don't have the inventory. Yeah, we have, we've, we've heard about the advertising impact of supply chain disruption, and that's enough to look past. It's a stock that I still think is, is suffering from its success, both on the charts and in terms of the pull forward. Again, active accounts um, was slightly weaker. I mean, that, that's a disappointing number. Uh, the, the company's still at a valuation, to me, that's very difficult. Um, yet on a year over year, is up 51 percent, despite falling 36 percent into this print. Um, so I, I think the comps are tough. I think the pull forward is tough. I think there's an incredible amount of competition out there, and the valuation doesn't make a lot of sense. We're seeing those stocks get punished uh, over the last few days and, and really, I guess, during this earnings season. So I don't think you need to chase this one down. Yeah, Dan Nathan was making the point yesterday on the show and on Twitter today. Everything, the everything from home trade, see, Grosso, that had benefited during the pandemic, getting crushed these days. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, uh, the, the active hours and the users and everything, uh, all of the above. But I guess margins for them had increased, and that was what Julia was saying, that they did a little better on that side. If I look at it on a chart, just based on technicals, uh, during the day going into the close, I hit 293 as support. I'm not looking at where it's trading now, but I'm assuming it's trading right around that level. So I'm with Tim. I don't think you have to try to catch a falling knife, but wait a couple of days. And I think you can buy this stock against that support level that has been support going back to March. So just wait a couple of days just to be safe. But uh, buy a third of a position. I, I, I wouldn't be afraid to buy something like this. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Capri Holdings, dressed to the nines, shares surging after posting some strong earnings. The traders give this trade a try on. Next, plus Zillow closing the doors on its home flipping biz. But that's not stopping some of our traders from getting in. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out some of these other names making uh, moves after earnings. Bookings, holdings jumping more than 4%. EA, take two, both higher. Meantime, uh, Etsy is down by a little bit more than 2% right now. Speaking of earnings, Capri stock jumping 15% after reporting this morning. Shares of the, the Versace and Michael Kors parents seeing its best day since October of 2018. At the luxury retailer posting better than expected results for the quarter, also raising its guidance for next year. Credit where credit's due. Uh, Grasso, is this uh, emblematic of retail overall or is this a Capri specific story? This is a Capri, this is a high end retail specific story. And what I mean by that is uh, most people do the valuation on Capri and value and do the valuation as if it's a mall stock. It's not a mall stock. It's a high end luxury stock. So you have Jimmy Choo, you have Versace in there. And when you compare it to the high end luxury, you get Hermes. Hermes trades at 65 or so times. So granted, uh, Capri is only, uh, it's a hybrid, only 40% of it is high-end luxury. So you have to get a blended multiple. That multiple, in my opinion, should be around 19 times. 19 times on current earnings brings the stock, in my opinion, to $95. That's where, when I power pitched it, back when it was trading at 17, that's where I thought it was going. I think in two years, they will earn about $8 cash EPS. Put that same multiple, $152 on the stock. I'm staying in the name. I obviously trimmed Melissa on the way up, but I'm still holding a 30% position looking for that $152. Karen? Yeah, I thought it was obviously a really good quarter. There was some North America was good. Europe was good. Asia, not surprisingly, wasn't. That was sort of the only weak spot. To, to uh, Steve's point, the, the whole premise here is to create a luxury conglomerate and therefore get a luxury multiple. They haven't been able quite to get the operating margins that luxury multiples get. Their gross margins were excellent, 67, I believe. That was really good. Versace was particularly good. Jimmy Choo, not quite as good. That's sort of the weakest but small, uh, smallest of the three. So clearly making good progress. They also announced a $1 billion share buyback. I'm staying long. I, I think that that 19 multiple, I don't know if it gets there ever, but there's room certainly between here and there. And this was a very good quarter for them. I think some of it, though, is, is going to be a good quarter for other retailers as well. But kudos to them. They really did a good job. True, maybe the smallest part of the business, but it is Guy's favorite brand of the stable of brands <laughs> under Capri Holdings. The answer to that is yes, because I have very narrow feet. And as you Jimmy Choo fans out there know, they're made for narrow feet, number one. Great call by Steve. Real quick, and and this is, I think, somewhat interesting for you technicians out there. You're still in this downtrend from February of 2014 when the stock was at that 98 level. But you get a couple days, you know, close above these levels. We have officially broken out. And $1 billion stock buyback, to Karen's point, is not insignificant. I think the market cap of the company is less than 10 billion. So a lot of good things happening right now. If you're trading it to Steve's other point, not a bad place to take some profits. If you're an investor, uh, you're loving what you're seeing right now. Coming up, pot stocks burning out as some big banks crack down on the trading in the sector. What is happening that has cannabis companies feeling the burn? Plus why some of our traders are taking today's plunge in Zillow as an opportunity to get into the stock. More on that. Fast Money's back in two. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks burning out today as what's been a bad month gets even worse. J.P. Morgan reportedly telling its prime brokers it will no longer allow them to buy and sell shares of some U.S.-based cannabis companies. The news comes after similar moves by Cowan, which has placed restrictions on pot stock trading, namely increasing margin requirements. Um, Tim, what does this do for the trade overall? Has this impacted you at all? So, look, I run a cannabis ETF and actually cannabis is my prime broker and they haven't they haven't pulled back at all. I think they've Cowan. done a great job is in Cowan the space. Or? I think J.P. Cow, skip to Cowan. Yeah, and I think I think Cowan is is holding a different line than J.P. Morgan, even Credit Suisse, who I think are going to be on the wrong side of history on this. I mean, look, if you listen to the attorney general, he's, he's not going after cannabis enforcement. If you've listened to the Supreme Court, they pushed on the Senate to basically say, look, you have to solve a problem where you know, over 85 percent of the country has cannabis legalized in some form. The states are doing what they're doing. And yet banks can't operate and people are carrying around you know, bags of cash. I mean, this is this is a major problem for investors. The good news is uh, you're investing now in a sector before a wall of institutional capital can get in. And I think for the banks that, that have chosen to be here, it's, it's profitable. And the enforcement risks, I can't speak as, as an enforcement official. I can just tell you what's going on and, and that that is not where the risks are. And so I, I think if you look at the sector, uh, we're about to get into third quarter earnings season. You're going to have a sector that year over year is probably growing 40 percent. Yes, third quarter numbers will show sequential uh, slowing over second quarter. And I think there is some concern that margins can't hold you know, mid 50s EBITDA margins. But this is potentially a hundred billion dollar sector in less than five years. And and I think investors that are understanding where you can get growth at a reasonable price know the cannabis as a sector, as a growth sector, is trading at a significant discount to sectors that don't offer this kind of growth. So frustrating as some of the runs in ETF, although I'd say on a day like today, uh, some of the names in my portfolio went higher because they are Canadian names or they are ancillary names that will probably see proxy play flow more than some of the U.S. plant touching that I also own. I mean, the the issue here, the root cause issue, is that it's federally illegal, even though it's legalized on a state-by-state basis. And so that's that's the underlying uh, issue here, Gross. And that's one of the reasons why Tim had mentioned this wall of institutional money that's waiting to get in. That federal illegality is one major reason why we haven't seen the floodgates open completely to this sector. 100%. That's why uh, Safe Banking Act is so important, and that's why that has to get passed, and it will eventually get passed. There's just so much on the docket up on Capitol Hill that we're seeing this stalled. But I do agree with Tim. Once you see that act get passed, these companies can actually conduct business and and operate like businesses. When you look at a stock like Kronos trading at five and a half dollars down 20 percent year to date, that's ultimate idiocy to me. When you look at a stock like Tilray with Erwin Simon at the helm, who's a tremendous operator, that's idiocy to me as well, where these levels these stocks are trading at. But all these banks, to Tim's point, are way behind the curve. It's, the, it's almost the same thing that they're doing with Bitcoin, but this is even worse. They're so far behind the curve here that once they do have to do a 180 with safe banking, once that's passed, these stocks are all going to be multiples higher than where they are now. All right. Coming up, a big for sale sign on shares of Zillow today. Why a couple of our traders are putting in bids for this stock. Plus, we're checking out some Uber options ahead of earnings tomorrow. The ride-sharing stock getting a big boost as the company gears up to report. We'll drive straight into that trade when Fast Money returns. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Zillow plunging to a 16-month low today after the company officially said it was exiting its home flipping business. The news prompting our next guest to cut its price target on the stock in half. Evercore Senior Managing Director and Head of Internet Research, Mark Mahaney, joins us now. Mark, great to have you with us. Um, you wrote in your downgrade note that you basically saw the iBuying business as sort of a, a valuable option in Zillow's stock, a, a call option, obviously, not, not the opposite as we've seen here actually play out. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, to the extent that you saw Zillow growing by X percent and reaching a, you know, whatever it is, valuation, if you strip out iBuying, what is that growth? What, what sort of valuation does it deserve given the ratcheted down growth expectations? So it looks like the core business, what they call IMT, but really is kind of uh, advertising for real estate professionals. We think that grows somewhere in this 10 to 20 percent range. It's low double digit growth, 10 to 15 percent. There should be some margin expansion there. So you're talking about maybe a 15 to 20 percent EBITDA grower you know, over the next couple of years. That warrants a decent EBITDA multiple, low end, you know, 15 times, high end, 20 times, somewhere in there. That's what we think the, the stock could be worth once we sort of get through all the disappointment, because it's not just exiting an option. There's really a, a, a question mark about the effectiveness of, uh, of management. It's Karen. Thanks for coming on. When you look at this and you look at the balance sheet and, you know, them getting out of the business, taking these big write downs, though, and then you look at the valuation where the stock is now, do you think we're going to see a big buyback from them? Oh, that would, I mean, look, there's a lot of things they can do here. Um, one of the things that was disappointing about this uh, announcement was I didn't know what the, the, the backfill plan was. So that's plan A. That didn't work. That's fine. What's plan B? I think there are a lot of things they can do to kind of fill in, provide more services for home sellers. Um, uh, it's just that we didn't hear what those details were. So I think that'll come as a you know potential positive catalyst. Yes, they've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet. I think it's about $3.2 billion. Now, a lot of debt, too. But this is, they're exiting what is a capital uh, heavy business, a business that requires a lot of uh, a lot of cash in order to handle all the, the home transactions. You got to put a lot of money at risk. So this does make it less risky, the balance sheet. And so therefore, you should not immediately, but in the next year or two, could you start seeing share repurchases? Yes. Hey, Mark, it's Tim. And, and I, that's why, you know, EBITDA margin of the core IMT business actually takes, you know, goes higher or, or the, the combined business, but now, which is just IMT. So I, I kind of get the sense uh, for a company that told us they didn't really know how to uh, assess the, the housing market over the next six to nine months. Um, people are concerned that they don't know how to assess the losses on the balance sheet from the iBuy business. Can you talk about this again as best you can assess? Because it seems to me the impairment charges here, um, the market's taken out a lot more than the, the two to 250 or 300 million that, that you know, I'm, I'm reading is, is where a lot of the analyst community is. Do you think the market's doing more than that to the stock? Yeah, so Tim, uh, two points first, because you teed it up. This is a high margin business. I mean, the core business, they're running at 40% plus EBITDA margins. There are very few companies I look at. I mean, Facebook, Google, that run in margins like that. So. That's a good, healthy business that generates a lot of cash flow. Frankly, as a growth investor, I'd like to see them take down those margins. You're not going to get any credit in the public markets after this kind of you know, fiasco. You're not going to get any credit in the public markets probably for six or nine months. So go invest in aggressively in new initiatives. Come out of that. Make yourself a great 23 stock, You know, acknowledging that you're probably not going to get much out of uh, 22. So that's point one. And then, yeah, the market probably overreacted. 
to the uh, the impairment of assets. I mean, the enterprise value in most people's mar uh, business uh, financial models, valuation models for the Zillow offers, I don't know, 10% of the entire uh, equity value, maybe 20%, but not more than that. And you could see how much the stock has come. Uh, it probably got overbought at the beginning of this year. But to me, it's probably in that oversold uh, territory. You can make a buy here on valuation. I just think you, I think you want to wait and see what the plan B is. So what are you going to do now to uh, offer something to home sellers? Um, Mark, I'm curious because at one point you thought this is a good idea and you had yeah. just you know, gone through how this is a, such a capital intensive business, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously predicting the home, the housing market is a very difficult thing and holding inventory on your books is not necessarily a good thing for what should be an Internet business. And I'm wondering, you know, as you look back, and obviously all of us can Monday morning quarterback on this, but what do you think you missed here? I mean, a lot of people missed it who were in the stock, obviously. So what do you think you overlooked here? Well, so, Melissa, the two questions, the, ones, the single biggest question I asked myself and I asked myself last night, is there a market here? Like, can you make money as an iBuyer or is this problem idiosyncratic to Zillow? And my guess is more the latter than the first. I don't cover uh, Open Door or OfferPad, but my guess is that, you know, I've seen the iBuy market increasingly gain share in terms of total residential home sales. And I've seen those companies, at least uh, Open Door, generate some decent, you know, uh, profits. And so, if they were better able to manage, you know, three, uh, two to three months out, uh, home prices and not um, get over ahead of their skis, there may well be a there there. So then, the mistake I made wouldn't have been on the market. The mistake I made would have been a little bit too conf too much confidence in the ability of this management team, which was a great uh, advertising revenue model to kind of shift over into a transactions model. That was always a jump in terms of the competencies required. You know, you got to know how to price uh, houses. You got to know how to quickly sure. renovate them and back out of the market. That's a tough, it's a different set so, of skills. This company didn't have it. The last quick question that I have, Mark, then is, are you confident in management to find other ways to continue to grow this business beyond its core IMT business, given the missteps it made? Yeah, I think they can. I think you can, there are ways you can, um, you, there are diversification strategies just within uh, advertising. By the way, this is a site that gets tons of traffic. It's so popular. S SNL does a skit about them. So Zillow's got great brand name uh, awareness, great brand awareness. There's probably more the company can do to monetize all that traffic. Yeah, I mean, I think I check it at least twice a day myself. Um, and I'm not even in the market for anything. <laughs> Mark, thank you. Thanks, Mark Melissa. Mahaney of Evercore. All right, so drum I feel like we need to do a big reveal here. Who are the two traders who actually bought on today's big dip? Karen and Tim. So, Karen, why don't you walk me through your trade? Yeah, so I started, but you and I were speaking early this morning. I started this morning, put my toe in, and then by midday, my shin. And then I finished at the very, very end of the day, like knee-high in this. I really like it. I think it's fantastic. I think that if you had told me June 30, when the stock was 120-something, they're going to get rid of the business that you hate, that asset-heavy one. They're going to take a big charge, not even that big, but a big charge to do it. And you're going to be able to buy the good business at 60-something dollars a share. I would have said that's never going to happen. But here we are. That's happening. So I think it's great. I've shown that I'm impatient and can't do the three-day rule. I did it with Ulta. I could have bought it better, but it ended up working out. I think that is what is going to happen here. I really like it. They're going to start to really try to, in the next quarters or two, make this a discontinued operation to highlight mm -hmm. the rest of the business, how fantastic that margin is. 
We remember, you remember this morning we were talking about we had Steve Eisman on. He didn't like Zillow for just that reason of this asset-heavy business. I spoke to him this morning, said, what do you think? He said, I think it's a great business. Uh, you know, they're out of it, that other one. This is a buy here. And he said, and you can quote me on that, just so, just so I know. <laughs> and there it is. Turn. But I like it, and I'm going to be buying it tomorrow. Yeah. T- Tim. <clears throat> As I saw Karen's toes floating down the stream, I, I started nibbling, too. I mean, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, and I, I've done it via, via options. And, and therefore, I, I, you know, as we always say, I think I can measure my downside. But uh, and on a big down day, sometimes the uh, the volatility plays in your favor if you're buying calls or a call spread. And, and so, you know, to me, I, I just see a core business, the IMT business that Mark talked about, that's that's, I, you know, the business that I see and know uh, is low 50s to mid 50s EBITDA margins um, growing at right high single digits, low, low, low uh, double digits. And I think it's a case where a lot of bad news. Uh, we have to get a little more clarity here. But I, I think this is a relief to a lot of investors. I, look, the stock's been torched. And it's been torched like there's something more we don't know is my view today on the mm. kind of move that we saw and even the, the move we've seen recently. And I, I think that's overdone. Guy, real quick, because we've got negative time. Have we seen the lows for Zillow? Traded 15 million shares today. Excuse me, 75 million. That's 15 times normal volume. Everything that happened was addressed at the Sone conference. So a lot of people, I think, knew this was going to happen. And stock was 107, if you recall, on October 27th after they talked about it on our show. So I think for a capitulatory bottom, this is as good as it gets. Coming up, a five-star day for Uber as shares see a nice pop ahead of earnings tomorrow. And option traders could be betting the climb continues. We've got the details next. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast. Check out shares of Uber hitting the gas today on the back of a big earnings beat by, uh, by fellow ride-hailing company Lyft. It's Uber's turn tomorrow, and one big player in the options market is betting on more ahead. Uh, Mike Coe joins us now to break down the action. Mike. Yeah, so in, uh, in Uber options, we saw it trade more than two and a half times its average daily call volume. Sentiment was actually mixed, despite the fact that calls outpaced puts by more than four to one. The most active options that we saw were the December 50s. Over 18,000 of those traded, including some purchases of blocks of 1,000. Somebody paid a dollar fifty for those. But I would also point out that late in the day, we did see a purchase of over 7,200 of the November 41 puts. Those were trading for only about 53 cents. That took place within the last 10 minutes of the day. Either way, the options market is implying some pretty big moves over the coming weeks. Traders betting on moves of more than 10% to both the upside and the downside. Mike, thanks for that. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Welcome back to Fast. Last check here on the stocks moving the after-hour session. Uh, that move on MGM, by the way, it extended its uh, pop just in the past, I don't know, half hour or so. So that's something to watch right now as the call goes on there. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Yeah, another bombed out name, Robinhood. I, I don't think their problems change overnight, but a very sticky platform and a great demographic. And I think a lot of downside ball should be uh, an opportunity. So, again, nibbling in options, Robinhood. Karen. Yeah, I'm going to be buying more Zillow. Zillow, the puke out may not be over, but I think the valuation's fantastic here. Steve Grasso. 
Can't believe Karen didn't wait for that three-day rule. I'm going to go with Capri. I'm staying consistent here. Today, it should be trading at 95, given the fair multiple of what it's worth today. So I'm sticking with that one, Capri. Guy. Shout out to Jeff Lane in Utah, who says he hasn't missed a show since you've been hosting, Mel. What? Big Mel fan. Palantir no. into earnings on the 9th. He's better attendance than I do. Um, thanks for watching Fast Money. <laughs> Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.